0: Hello, I'm Julie Bindle, and today I'm speaking with the brilliant Maya Forstutter, the woman who lost her job when she was accused of transphobia, unfairly, unjustly, of course, and who earlier this year was awarded over £100,000 in compensation, rightly so,
1: for what they'd put her through. They had these external trainers who were doing EDI training for the organisation, that was their big mistake because the women who were doing the training had completely bought into gender ideology and they told them that what I had said was on par with Nazism, basically.
0: And what it's done is enable others, including myself, to take a case against whether it's a local authority or an employer or whoever, on the same basis basically the views that biological sex cannot be changed and that there is a problem i won't say conflicting rights between trans identified men demanding coming into our single sex spaces i'd say that they're trying to destroy our rights it would lead to a destruction of women's rights so her victory came after a high court judge ruled in June 2021 that her views on the immutability of sex are a philosophical belief protected by equality legislation and that they should be tolerated in a pluralist society. I mean, philosophical belief? No, it's a fact. Anyway, here she is. Hope you enjoy the conversation. Tell me, first of all, about Sex
1: Matters and why you thought that you had to set it up? Sex Matters is, we set it up as a human rights organization. It's the Campaign for Clarity on Sex in law and policy in the UK. So that's what it says on the tin and that's what we do. And I thought it was important to have an organization that just does that basic thing there are lots of people coming at this issue for all kinds of reasons, because of feminism, because of science, because of children, obviously, people who are concerned about their particular sector, about the arts, or obviously about gay and lesbian rights, and all of those things matter. But underlying all of it is the ability to talk about the fact that there are two sexes, this just really basic thing that I lost my job for. And I felt like at the in 2020 2021 when I started to think about what became sex matters with a small group of people that there was a sort of gap in the market or a gap in the solution space for an organization that was just doing the very basic thing of saying there are two sexes that matters that needs to be clear in law and then everything else sits on top of that see I've shifted
0: my perception over the decades as a feminist because I used to be quite I think we all did back in the kind of late 70s early 80s we used to be quite defensive about some of the perceived or scientific biological differences between men and women we were well aware of those biological differences but we underplayed them and the reason why we underplayed them was because they were so overplayed and they were used against us, they were used to justify our oppression and our subjugation. So we pushed the other way, we went the other way. And of course we were a million miles away from the hell that became Judith Butler's theory. We we did not think for one minute that sex did not matter. But I have learned a lot from people within this debate, this war, who would agree with us that sex does matter. For example, Carol Hoove in her book, Testosterone, I disagree with some of her conclusions, but I really have learned a huge amount about the significance of differences between the sexes, but they're not the differences that we are told by sexist or misogynistic men, or they don't have the same significance. So what do you think are the key things why does it matter that we look very specifically about those differences aside from the obvious which is of course sport everybody might say sport is the clearest example
1: I think in practical terms it's the the things that we all know it's it's women's vulnerability to male violence it's our dignity and privacy it's as we say it's not all men are rapists or predators but it's just a really basic thing for women to be included in public life that you're able to go and get undressed and know that's privacy and and that was not a given obviously that was a given in our lifetime we didn't have to fight for that but it wasn't that many generations before us that women were fighting just to be able to have toilets in the workplace and and that's why all of that stuff is in law it's all of that sort of basic stuff that allows women to get out of the house and over over the past 100 or so years lots of sexist laws have been removed because of feminist activism and political fights so all of the laws that said women can't can't vote can't be in the professions can't be economically independent from their husbands all of that has gone and so the only laws that we have left that treat men and women differently are now there for a good reason and if you undermine those good reasons it's women that suffer because those reasons are there to protect women and then underlying that is the fact that there are biological differences between men and women and I call myself a feminist I am a feminist but I'm not I didn't have a humanities education. My degree is in agriculture. I really am a biological essentialist. Um, (laughs) The other day I met Richard Dawkins and I was so excited. As I said to him, the book *The Selfish Gene was the first book I took out of the adult library. And I remember sitting on the floor in the library, reading it and going, wow, this is now I understand like, how the world works, how what underpins why we are the way we are and then the other big thing for me is I'm a mother and I think biology just hits you in the face when you get pregnant. You, I went to school, I went to university, I went to work and I thought the big battles were won and men and women had equality that there weren't that many differences. And then as soon as you become pregnant, have a child, the reality of what that means, and the fact that being a mother really doesn't fit in very well with the world of work, which is still built around men, fathers, fathers who have mothers who do most of the work, all of that comes back. So then I thought, yeah, sex matters.
0: You and I would never have crossed paths probably would we you were working as a tax expert in a big international development organization i used to do bits of work for the department for international development as it was then so we would come across various personnel in countries where we were doing whatever we were doing against trafficking of women all of the stuff that you have seen during your work in that unmentionable place but You had an extremely clear view, didn't you? Which is why you ended up fighting the case that sex really does matter when it comes to what we are doing and how we're responding to girls and women in developing countries and in war zones and post-war communities, et cetera. When did things start to really piece together for you that this ideology was dismissing the material reality
1: of female lives? Like most people, I was late to the game, unlike you. So, 2017, I think, was when a lot of people woke up to this ideology when you know, the government was consulting on gender self ID. And I, one of the first things that I noticed was when Jenny Murray was cancelled. And I was like, but Jenny Murray, they're- they're yeah. saying- <laughs> Jenny Murray. <laughs> I think she peaked a lot of feet. That was the first sort of thing that sort of prickled my brain to think something's wrong here I need to pay attention to this and but then there's all of these barriers that are put around it to say if you question this you are a bigot and so I I didn't want to jump in with two feet so I started following I had a like a Private Twitter list where people can't see who's on the list. Oh, yes. So I thought, I'm not going to follow them because that's, I could, I could tell it was dangerous even then. So I started reading stuff on Mum's Net and following it on Twitter and for about a year before I spoke up. And then the next thing that sort of on my journey of peak trans was when Maria McLachlan was yes. attacked at Speaker's Corner. And I remember watching. That video, there were various videos from different angles. It's not all that clear. You watch it a couple of times and you go, okay, I understand what this is. This is men beating up women. I've seen this before. I haven't seen it in the detail that you've seen it, but I think every woman knows what that is.
0: Absolutely. And
1: and then the disjunction between the words that were being said around that, the TRAs were saying this 60-year-old woman is beating up a poor young girl. And then you're looking at the picture and going, that's a six-foot bloke thumping a woman. Yeah, because they did that
0: whole... Know. Yeah, they messed around with the uh, the footage, didn't they? They literally cut and sliced it yeah. to try to make it look as if she was attacking this
1: poor trans girl. Yes, and put arrows on it and stuff. But then even with the cut and splice, you could see that's a six-foot bloke. So that sort of disjunction between the words and what I was seeing then made me think, Okay, now I understand you. If you cut through the words and you just think, who are the men, who are the women in this situation? What's what are the power relations? What is going on here? It becomes much clearer. And all of the stuff about misgendering. So when I first started tweeting about this in September 2018, I got an email from HR saying, this is exclusionary language and can you put a disclaimer on your tweets? And I said, yes, I'll happily put a disclaimer on. And in my first email back to them, I said, but of course I would respect anybody's pronouns. And I would, I'm not, I'm not a very conflict, happy person. You're also not an extremist. might seem surprising.
0: Yeah, but you're not an extremist. What I mean is we know it's a fiction, but I don't think that you are so hell bent On making a point that you would have to go to the end and back on something that actually we all know is a fiction.
1: Although I think my position has changed since then but I think but that was the first my first response was I would respect someone's pronouns and I and I would in terms of if I was at a conference on international development and there was somebody there who happened to be trans and we were talking about tax like why would I make this an issue that but I can, but I also, over the past few years, I've come to see how much the bullying to use the preferred language means that we can't see what's really happening in the picture, which is men intimidating women.
0: I agree. And I've also shifted on that. I used to compromise far more. And I would think this is not a battle that I'm going to die over. Mm. And now I think that is the battle, actually. Yeah. You can still be respectful, but know that actually you're referring to he in public is really important. And I had this battle with the Daily Mail when I interviewed a woman who was sexually assaulted by a trans-identified male in prison. And I said to her, what pronouns do you want to use? Because I'll be using he. We were talking about his penis, for example. And we all remember the Karen White tobacco. Yes. Her erect penis for fuck's sake. And she said, fuck this, I will respect trans women's pronouns, but not when they're using their penis as a weapon. So we used he all the way through. And then the male, of course, had complaints. And thankfully, one of the organisations, I think it was Fair Play for Women, complained about them switching the pronouns to she or they. I think we've settled on they as a last resort. And this is ongoing. This is ongoing and it is bullying and it's bullying newspapers and it gives people an impression that these are some sort of subset of women. So I've also shifted. I now won't. I won't do it. I won't use their imaginary pronouns.
1: Yeah. And the other thing is, however reasonable you are and however much you compromise and apologise, it's never enough. Absolutely. Totally.
0: And we've seen this, haven't we, with Martina Navratilova saying something very gentle about fairness in sport ending up going from a trans and lesbian and gay ally to a nazi bigot because as we know you have to go straight to hitler and realizing of course that she may as well say what she thinks because she has nothing to lose
1: yeah it's been quite glorious watching her going from she she apologized at the beginning and they said go off and educate yourself and so she did and she came back stronger and, and then she's kept coming back stronger Oh, and she's wonderful. And she
0: and I remember it was one day I was sitting exactly where I'm sitting talking to you and my book was going to come out. It had just gone out for review. And my phone rang, WhatsApp rang, and it was Martina. And it was like God ringing you. It was like, what what the hell? What? (laughs) Martina's calling me. Oh, my God. And I was actually nervous to answer. We'd talked before, we'd met before, but I thought it was about the book because I'd asked her to blurb it. And she was just going berserk saying, Who are these people? What the hell are they on? And she just, she couldn't quite get the fact that after being respectful, apologising, they came after her harder and worse. And of course, she's a bright woman. She understood it was because it's misogyny, it's violence, it's punishment, it's, listen, bitch, sit the fuck down and you do exactly what I tell you. Apology isn't enough, and so fuck the apology, quite frankly. Yeah, absolutely. So there you were, told that you should put a disclaimer on your tweets, which you did, and then it all blew up, didn't it?
1: Yes, it was about six months from that first email to when I finally lost my job, and I didn't at the time. I couldn't see what was going on under the waterline but then once you take your employer to court you get all of the disclosures eventually and so then you get all of the email trails and you see what was going on and what was going on was it escalated from so the first weekly management meeting where this came up the what had happened was some young women or younger women in Washington DC in the headquarters had complained that it was transphobic that I was tweeting about this, and. You can see in the notes from those first meetings that the senior leadership said, we can see this is a controversial subject. It's a topic of political interest. There, are, we She seems to be making a point that we may or may not agree with, but it's within the bounds of the kinds of things that somebody working for a think tank that doesn't take positions could say. And rightly, they said, put a disclaimer on your tweets, which is fine. But they weren't at that point going apeshit and then it got picked up particularly by a couple of people and and it escalated and so then they tried to deal with it in a what they thought was a sensible way they brought in external consultants they had these external trainers who were doing edi training for the organization that was their big mistake because the women who were doing the training had completely bought into gender ideology and they told them that what I had said was on par with Nazism basically and I remember quite early because it was a think tank when the guy from HR emailed me I I told him a bit about the topic and the political question in the UK at the time and I sent him a few things to read one of the things I sent him to read was an article by Kathleen Stock in the conversation and thinking this is a place where people think and talk and argue and that they'd want to know the background and then later on these consultants that they brought in one of the things that they pointed to as one of my crimes was that I had tweeted a letter um one of these open letters about Kathleen Stock which was about that article in The Conversation. And my tweet was saying, look, you can get cancelled just for saying these perfectly careful, rational arguments in the way that Kathleen Stock makes them. And these consultants pointed to that and said, see, she knows that these arguments are not respectable. And so everything that I'd done to try and be the most reasonable version of this and to give them the most reasonable version of this ended up being thrown back in my face as the thing completely escalated and they went from being quite reasonable people to 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 shooting themselves in the foot and looking quite foolish on in court.
0: This is the beauty of it, isn't it? And of course, we've all got a huge amount to thank you for going through this. And I don't think anyone can truly understand the hell that somebody goes through when they take their employer to court when they go through that. When you keep getting disclosure that paints you as a hideous human being, that everything you know about yourself is turned on its head. The stress, the worry about money, the process through the court case—all of it, all of it.
1: I did get one. I did get one email back where they somebody was defending me, and he de- described me as frequently irritating, and I thought I feel seen. <laughs>
0: Perfect. Frequently irritating. Yes, I'll take that one. I'll join you. I'll join you. This is what I really laughed at. Obviously, it's a serious issue. We know that it's life and death. But and the hell that you went through, you can't underestimate this stuff. The effect, the stress, the loss of however many years it takes. But I did really laugh. It is. It's people do not think they think it's some kind of pantomime, some sort of theatre. We take these cases because somehow it's entertainment and we want to look good. It's horrible. But I did laugh when I took my case against Nottingham City Council for not allowing me to speak about male violence in the public library whenever it was, a couple of years ago. And when they were trying to half-heartedly fight it, because of course I had the wonderful Karen Monaghan and Aqua Reindorf and they were never going to win this, it was pure discrimination. And their letter that they sent back in the first instance to our complaint and where we set out our case where we had used, of course, the reference of Forstatter. We'd said, you know, that that these views are perfectly reasonable. And I wasn't even going to talk about the trans issue anyway, but we threw in your case, as many of us do now. And they came back and said, yes, but you can't use Forstatter because the court found that Forstatter isn't really a Nazi, but you're closer to Nazism (laughs) than she is. (laughs) I mean, talk about people that don't see this as misogynistic. It's just crazy. And I agree with you. We have to look at this from all angles. You don't have to be a feminist to complain about this or have a skin in the game. But my God, does feminism explain the misogynistic side of it? Absolutely.
1: If you don't see this in terms of the power relations between men and women, you can't see it.
0: Let's talk about kids for a bit, because I sometimes wonder whether or not because I know that prisons are never going to pique the nation because most people will not associate themselves with either their potential of being locked up or their loved ones being locked up in a women's prison.
1: And also they can't see it. it they you know, So much of it goes on, but obviously behind closed doors. And
0: also what people don't understand is the hell of prison, what prison is like. And I've had people say to me, those women are criminals, they've done something bad. Why should we give a damn? They've no idea that those women exist on a diet of fear throughout Mm, their term it's hell prison is hell without a few predators with attached to a penis in there making life much worse and they also don't understand that even if these trans women are not sexual predators the fear alone just adds to the mix sports was always going to be more of a a game changer because obviously that unfairness is so clear but again A lot of people don't give a damn about elite sports, don't watch elite sports, don't have kids being trained in elite sports. But what about kids? Obviously, Sex Matters has done quite a bit to explain the issues in terms of school and this whole gender identity nonsense for two-year-olds to rebuke all the bullshit fed to them by the likes of Stonewall and Mermaid. So tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, this thing started with adults with the desires of a few a few adults but it has been pushed into schools and i think and onto children and that's been the most damaging thing about it and i think will be its undoing because people do care about children and they do see what's happening and it's just so obscene the thing that we're really focused on at the moment is is the school's guidance that the department for education has promised and this is they promised this for about seven years originally it was going to be the equality and human rights commission that would do it and they brought out some draft guidance in 2018 i think that was basically stonewall's guidance and this is what schools have been using because they they don't know what to do when they have a child who turns up and says, I think I'm born in the wrong body. Where do they turn to advice? They've had no good advice from the government. And they've meanwhile, they've had Stonewall and mermaids knocking on their door saying we can tell you how to do this. And they've had activist teachers or teachers who've just come up through the ideology themselves and have been told that this is the thing to do. So you have this school to clinic pipeline where children are being socially transitioned in school before they ever get to see a doctor. And then by the time they are referred to a clinic, they've already socially transitioned in school. They already have the expectation that they can be accepted as the opposite sex and they're on a collision course with their own puberty because a child who's nine or eight or nine or ten can pass as the opposite sex and the differences are not so great but puberty put overturns all of that and so then you have these children who are just desperate for puberty blockers and hormones and it's great it's great that the Tavistock what's happened at the Tavistock has been exposed and that's closing it's still concerning as to what what's going to replace it yes but what's gone on in schools is still carrying on it's accelerating and until we fix that there are going to be more and more of these children who have been convinced that something's wrong with their healthy body
0: One one of the things that's most painful personally for me about this whole monstrosity of gender identity is the way that my own movement the movement for lesbian and gay rights has been used as a smokescreen to argue that these kids should be on puberty blockers. I'm 61. So many women of my generation and even younger would have been marched to the clinic had they had middle-class liberal parents. When we were going through the hell of recognising that we were seen as odd or freakish or feeling kind of self-hatred and doubt. and But also this thing that these young younger gay men do, likening what's happening when feminists, human rights activists, critique gender ideology to what happened in Section 28, which I lived through and campaigned through and saw the fatalistic attitudes of the gay men at the time saying things like, one of them actually wrote an article in a London magazine saying it was the road to Auschwitz, that not being able to talk positively about gay relationships in school, which was an abomination, was like sending Jews to a concentration camp. They were saying things at the time like, please accept us, please tolerate us, we want tolerance. Lesbians were saying, no, we don't want tolerance, we want liberation. So these gay men, these fatalistic gay men, who have no idea what Section 28 was about or how it was repealed, and now, using the trans stuff as an analogy, how fucking dare they? It's just
1: obscene. I, th- I think we... It's very difficult. We know the cost of speaking up about this, and we can also see the benefits of being inside. the 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 Stonewall built a an infrastructure, and not just of the organization, but of all of these Stonewall champions and all of these organizations that feel bad about Section Twenty Eight and think that they were slow to gay rights and that they want to do the right thing now, and they still don't know. What the right thing is, and being inside of that gives you benefits. Mm -hmm. I think that there are there there are there are lots and lots of people who are scared to speak out, but there are lots and lots of people who know what side their bread is buttered on. And but the harm that's being done to children is unforgivable.
0: That and that's the thing, isn't it? That when we rightly say, because we know that it's true after all these years, things are changing. More people are seeing this for what it is. Institutions are beginning a little bit to row back from their just complete capture by this stuff. There's more scrutiny. There's more of critical thinking around it. But where there's direct harm being done to children, we can't sit on our laurels. I I do think things are very different. And you must see this. We all do. How different this is from five years ago five mm. years ago it was there was barely any room to to talk about this but now there's plenty of room and I do think
1: we're shifting things I do as well but I there's so much that's gone on in plain sight and when you make the flip you know which, what like the thing of watching that video and going okay this is a man thumping a woman when the similar flip when you see this is harm being done to vulnerable children to gay children to autistic children yeah that when you see that it completely changes the whole picture but all of this has gone on in plain sight and it seems like it's really hard to turn this juggernaut around since my case since i won people have legal protection people are taking cases to court people are saying my name to their employer and it's stopping investigations but the cancellations and the bullying has also ramped up yes, become, it has. it's become stronger it's protecting this core of harm from scrutiny has become wilder and the cost some people who are freelance or at the beginning of their career it's great to have employment protection but it doesn't it's not wall-to-wall, 100% protection. Right. And being cancelled is awful, and it's still awful, and it's getting worse. We see this every time a celebrity speaks up and it's then yeah. pushed to to apologise.
0: Oh, that hurts, um, doesn't it? That's yeah, horrible. It, it,
1: that is painful. But I think once, once the box is open, once the cat's out of the bag, it can't go back in. But these kind of, I think, dying days of the ideology fighting to protect itself are getting nastier and nastier it
0: is and it's also more unhinged so you also see these absolute lunatics online talking about wanting to be the first trans woman to have an abortion please Uh, what woman on this planet and I speak as someone who has campaigned for the rights of abortion for a long time as many of us have what woman would ever celebrate an abortion what lunacy this is so bring uh, it on bring it uh, on
1: every aspect of female life can be fetishized that we've seen you know from knitting to abortion to menstruation it, it's all just it's all just fetish
0: we thought we had problems back in in the early days of the kind of pro feminist men's movement i remember in 1981 going to a meeting of a group called achilles heel these men we called them all nigel they were well meaning but many of them sat around just therapizing each other but I remember getting really cross when I saw these two men knitting in a very kind of obvious look at me, I'm breaking gender (laughs) stereotypes. I just thought, oh, sod off. (laughs) But let's have a laugh because obviously there are crazed lunatics. We don't, we. Feminists have the best sense of humour. Those of us fighting this stuff. My God, do we have to laugh at some of the stuff to let off a bit of steam. Is there anything that comes to mind that is the craziest (laughs) thing? I don't mean the most distressing because there's plenty of that, but... (sighs) I mean, that abortion thing was actually quite upsetting, although you can wryly laugh about it. But we've seen some sights, haven't we, over the years?
1: Yeah, yes. Yeah, we really have. And I think the thing, Picture Paints a Thousand Words, the guy is all distressing. It's not funny, but you have to show what's going on. It's you ridiculousness. Know, the And the fact that, for so many people, it's a fetish. It's yes. It's it's a sexual fetish. They're getting their jollies off in public, and they're doing it non-consensually with you. But, and that's why it's impolite to say so. Um, right. And all of the just ridiculous pictures of chair poverty, for example. Oh, de- the, Dame the, Katie. Let's talk yes, about Dame Katie. The, yes. The. Guys who pose in their stockings and lingerie with seemingly no chairs, a um, perch
0: on the end of a bed or sit sprawled on on what looks like a very dirty carpet. Can these men not clean up? The the backdrop to these photographs that Dame Katie, who I think is a, <laughs> their their places are so bloody filthy. Dame Katie, who has his kind of shtick, is that he was Miss Grimsby 1983 I think and that he campaigns against trans chair poverty yes talks about trans animals we see pictures of dogs with wigs superimposed on them and the like and it is very funny because it does actually speak to the ridiculous ridiculousness and Moley as well Moley with the West Yorkshire Police yeah lesbian nan scandal where he actually mocked up a, a nan bread with the police officer who apparently looked like a lesbian <laughs> nun absolutely comic genius some of it actually and, and coming from and, a lot of gay men as well who were really shifting
1: yeah and i think the thing about comedy allows you to talk about things you're not allowed you're not allowed to talk about that that's how you deal with discomfort but also these things are pattern recognition when when somebody encounters one agp man and thinks, does he think he looks good? What does he think? Like th- right. they have nothing, they have nothing, they have no context for it. And the only con, the only official context for it that they have is this very Poe faced stonewall you mu- this is a civil rights movement but when you've seen <laughs> five or six or a dozen of them you go hold on a second this is not a civil rights movement right. this is a hobby that people should keep in their homes absolutely <laughs> and also just some of the language that's used the ridiculous as you
0: say po-faced language I was booking a flight the other day and I can't say assigned now without at birth <laughs> after it. So I said, your seat is assigned. And I'm saying to my partner, our seats are assigned at birth. And she just laughed (laughs) because you can't actually not take the piss out of some of this language. It's crazy. What do they mean assigned at birth for God's sake? And I was watching something the other day on Netflix, trying to relax to get to sleep after a stressful day and I found something that was—I don't know if you're queer as folk—that was on. Yeah, that was on in the nineteen nineties. It was very radical at the time. A lot of it was, in my view, as a feminist and as a lesbian, a bit problematic. But it was interesting. And of course, is it Russell T. Davis who wrote it? He's he flies the trans flag very proudly. And there's now there's a U.S. version that I picked up on that I didn't even know existed. And the storyline was, what looked to be at first a lesbian couple with one of them heavily pregnant. And of course, it turned out that the non-pregnant one was in fact a male, a trans woman. And the babies, I think twins were delivered at the hospital. The bloke, the trans woman, was there at the birth as the proud co-parent. The doctor handed the two babies over to the, in inverted commas, mothers and said, you have a little boy and a little girl. And the trans one said, we don't know that yet. And I just cracked out laughing. I thought, this is batshit. It's batshit. And when you see it that way, as you said earlier, it can give you a laugh. We know that this is, as I said before, life and death matter. It's very serious. But you also have to laugh because that's how people realise the ridiculousness of it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, a straight couple had a baby or two babies <laughs> so how revolutionary oh no um, I love the
0: fact that although the, in
1: this storyline
0: the trans woman did, was not the sperm donor they had a bloke to do that because so invested was the trans person in his female identity that of course he couldn't give his sperm couldn't even do that bit and we were treated to a, a kind of image of Ishlong when he got undressed to make sure that we all knew that this trans woman uh, had kept his penis so all of it is mad and then you have comedians when we had our first lunch with our wonderful friend Joe Rowling at which those that complained about it were either openly envious or bitterly jealous whoever that comedian was who said that she was having a mad angry cry because there was a picture of some turfs out having a good time at the river cafe
1: (laughs) god forbid how could we possibly do that but who are we talking about but i think people who have taken all of this on board you can be made to feel that anyone is the enemy and the emotions are real the the emotions that these kids feel that that they think we're nazis are real they've been manipulated into them but they're not putting it on. Oh, no, you're right. I remember
0: at Philia, at the conference, big feminist conference, which was held in Portsmouth two years ago, you were there and Helen Joyce was there and many of us. And there was the big kind of blue fringe group outside protesting, banging on the windows when we were talking about male violence. I remember being in a session where a woman from Eritrea was speaking about being raped whilst in detention awful stuff they were banging on the windows sex workers work blow jobs are real jobs trans women are women the usual and helen lewis the journalist said to me let's go out and talk to them i always try and talk to the crowd and say what's going on what are you protesting we're protesting male violence do you support rape do you support femicide so we went up to this small particular group and steph from steph's place many mm. listeners will yeah. know who he is draped in a full trans flag they had just by the way taken the knee to commemorate all of those trans people murdered for being trans of which there were none but they were taking the knee anyway. So Helen and I went to speak to a, a woman who was identifying as a trans man a lesbian basically who had some facial stubble was wearing a man's suit and just tried to was talking to this person and saying what is the problem? We are here to end male violence and the tyranny of sexism surely that's nothing it's not reasonable to protest and shout and bang at the windows and this person said to me you're perfectly reasonable I know but it's the likes of Julie Bindle that are hate mongers (laughs) and Helen and I just cracked I said I am Julie Bindle and he just said no you're not she said no you're not no you're not I said I identify as Julie Bindle in that case. And somebody was sitting down holding up a placard, and you'll have seen this, with something like, suck my dick, you transphobic cunts. Yeah, yeah. See it, people. See it. Yeah, yeah. So what for the future? Come on, tell me what Sex Matters is doing next. You're coming to Philia this year. Brilliant. It's always a fantastic event, isn't it? And Sex Matters are always fully lauded and applauded tell me what your next moves are
1: the big thing two big things are the equality act and schools this government's got a bit of time left they really need to sort out the problem which which all happened on their watch Rishi Sunak has said he knows what a woman is that's great but he needs to put his money where his mouth is he needs to fix the legislation and so we spent a lot of time, we got this 100,000, 110,000 signatures on our petition. We had this amazing debate in the House of Commons, at Westminster Hall debate, where MPs stood up and said the things the things that you've been saying for a dozen years. And we were
0: treated to yours and Helen's faces, <laughs> rolling your <laughs> no, eyes. No, that was another time. Oh, that was, we, the, we were, other, that was yes, the other. Yes, <laughs> we were very well
1: behaved at this one. It was a proper political debate about... How the law, how these laws impact on women, on children, on vulnerable people. And we really want to get this government to fix the Equality Act before the election, and they can do it. That's where we're going to be putting a whole lot of our focus. And then the other thing is this school's guidance, because you can fix the law but you also need to fix the pipeline that's driving this, which is schools. And again, this has been promised. They can do it. There's no excuse for not doing it. And, you know, and then we have an election and then we want every politician to know that they will be asked, do you know what a woman is? Are you going to protect women? Are you going to protect children? Are you going to allow this ideology to continue to capture all our institutions? Or are you going to be the grown-ups in the room and I, it's not a party political issue it destroys every party and our laws are not terrible there, there are things that need to be fixed in the law but the UK is not in as bad a place as the US or Canada on right. this so we have the potential to fix it to show how you can protect everyone's human rights and the first thing to do that is to make clear that the Equality Act protects sex discrimination and trans discrimination as two separate things
0: well we will of course help in any way we can we've got Kathleen Stock and I have got the lesbian project moving forward to protect single sex spaces the right for us to actually organize as lesbians as female only going forward we've seen what's happened to Jenny Watson The woman who was running speed dating events for lesbians called transphobic because some bloke with an erection turns up claiming to be a lesbian. All of it merges together, doesn't it? That's why we
1: need to support each other's initiatives. The law underpins all of this. Absolutely. And, you know, the groups that some of the groups that are the least heard, I think, are the trans widows the yes. wives, the wives of these men, That's or true. ex-wives of these men. The people who are most harmed by this ideology, often it's the hardest for them to speak out because it's in their homes, it's affecting them, it's affecting their children. Yes, They can't tell those stories publicly, and they we mustn't forget those people.
0: You're absolutely right, and Vaishnavi Sundar, of course, the great feminist, Indian feminist filmmaker, who we'll see at Philia this year, She's making what sounds like an absolutely banging film, feature length documentary featuring 18 of these women's stories. So we can look forward to that as well. Yeah, that would
1: be amazing.
0: Carry on supporting each other, carry on arguing, fighting, and being absolutely engaged in solidarity struggles, always.
1: Absolutely.
0: Thanks so much for the chat. It's been brilliant.
1: Brilliant to talk to you.
0: That was Maya Forstater. And I hope that you enjoyed that. I certainly enjoyed talking to her. I always do. And Maya and I disagree on many things. And we agree on fundamental things. That's all I'm going to say. We share a set of values. And I think going forward, that's the way that we should measure whether or not we can work together. Sharing a set of values. And I applaud Sex Matters for the work it's doing. And Maya... And Helen Joyce, her co-conspirator, for achieving so much in the short time that they have been active. See you next
1: time.